Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. I'm so glad you've joined us on today's podcast, which is all about empowering you with knowledge so you can take control of your own wallet, your own future. Coming up today, I want to talk about fake reviews and how they're used to cheat us and what you need to look out for so that you make better buying decisions. And coming ahead, it's been really, really hard for months to find a decent deal on a new or used vehicle. I'm going to tell you there's a corner of the vehicle market that might actually provide you a decent deal. And I'll fill you in. So fake reviews are a plague. You know, in terms of Amazon, we're getting close to half of all reviews on Amazon being faked. Biggest problem with online reviews anywhere is apparently with Amazon. Because Amazon has an unusual selling system. There's a small number of items on Amazon.com that Amazon actually stocks and sells as their own. Everything else on Amazon.com is under what they call internally their marketplace. It's where third-party sellers pay Amazon a commission for every item that's sold on their platform. And even more, if you want as a seller, you can have Amazon do all fulfillment for you. So the items are stored in Amazon warehouses, delivered by Amazon employees. And so Amazon, for the most part, is a fulfillment house of other sellers' goods rather than their own. So these sellers, of which there, I think there's maybe more than a million worldwide, third parties that sell on Amazon, desperately claw and scratch to be the items that buyers are going to look at and buy. And so with the secret mix of algorithms at Amazon, one thing that seems to be not so secret is that sellers that have really high ratings tend to get first viewing. It's very Most people are shopping on their phones. They're usually not going to go past that first screen. So getting that first screen or second screen real estate is key for those sellers. So that's led to a huge business and bulk buying of fake reviews. Okay, who would have imagined there'd be, to call them companies wouldn't be right, enterprises, maybe we'll call them that, that what they sell to Amazon sellers are bulk purchase of fake reviews. 
I read an extensive piece on it in New York Post, which is unusual because New York Post usually writes very brief items about how involved this is and how Amazon sellers go about buying all these fake reviews. So know that you and I are being played when you shop on Amazon and to a lesser extent other sites. So, you know, this has been a problem before Amazon. This was really a big problem in the travel industry with fake reviews. It works so well for travel suppliers that it's migrated around and even become more intense in this last year of the pandemic. So how do you protect yourself from being played, from being conned? Read the reviews. Ignore the star-level ratings on a merchant or the items. Read the reviews at any website. And you can pretty quickly spot which ones are real and which ones are fake. I see it on uh, when I'm uh, pre-pandemic, when I was allowed to travel, when I would be looking at hotel reviews. I mean, it was like a joke. I could spot the fake five-star and the fake one-stars pretty easily. Why one-stars? A lot of competitors would pay for people to post bad reviews about a property to try to get more bookings for their property. That's how much this is dirty dealing and dirty pool. And you and I are the ones that, unfortunately, we're the ones that have to be the cops because Amazon's not doing it. Krista? Clark Joshua in Georgia says, My wife and I both work. I have a company provided 401k and also invest in my Roth IRA in a target date fund. We'd like to open another Roth for my wife to contribute the maximum allowable $12,000 each year. Should we invest in the same target date fund for her Roth, or should we take an entirely different investment approach on hers? To me, I would keep it simple and just do the target date. Target date funds, by their nature, are pretty diversified. And I have ignored something about target date funds that I should mention. The big providers of 401k plans offer extremely low-cost target date funds. Some of the more obscure, smaller players, some of the insurance companies that offer 401ks rip off the account holders in target date funds. It's really good to know what the expense ratios are you're paying on those target date funds, and they should be teensy tiny um, in the range of expense ratios. That's the amount you pay for the management of your money of less than 0.30 of a percent. Anything more than that, they're cheating you. Okay, Dan in Florida says, I was listening to a recent podcast about reevaluating my video streaming services. Recently, Netflix lost the rights to stream The Office. Rather than sign up for Peacock, I'm thinking about buying The Office on streaming from Amazon Prime Video for $17 to $18 per season. It's a large upfront cost, but this is 90% of what I watch on TV and can see myself watching it on repeat for the next decade or so. I have two major concerns. One, if I buy the rights to stream, it seems like I should have access forever, but how can I be sure of that? And two, how concerned should I be with picture quality 10 to 20 years from now? This seems like a ridiculous thing to spend my thoughts on, but I know if I sign up for Peacock and continue with my habits, it will be 10 years from now and I'll be out $1,000 plus on streaming rather than 150 it seems like a no-brainer to me. So Peacock is restricting 
from their free service to only certain seasons, hoping you'll then be caught on it. You know, I think it's seasons one and two or one, two, yes, three. Yes, one and two. One and two. So then they get you hooked, and then they hope you'll switch to paid Peacock to see the remaining seasons. That's uh, that's pretty clever of Comcast to do that. But anyway, your idea of buying the seasons, if it's really the only television that really matters to you, that seems like a viable strategy. I would only do it, though, for seasons three and forward, Sign up for the free version of Peacock to watch one and two to your heart's desire. Jenny in Florida says, I heard you mention this in the past, but I can't remember what form to use. I want to invest in my daughter's new house. When they sell, I will get a portion of the profits, i.e. she buys a house for $200,000. I pay the down payment of $50,000. When she sells, I get 25% of the profit. What is the form called? Uh, It's called a real estate lawyer. Jenny, this is not one you do without the services of a real estate lawyer if the property is in Florida. In Florida, the real estate transactions are done by specialty real estate lawyers. It'll be a very inexpensive thing. You're having them create a shared appreciation agreement. Uh, You do not want to be on the loan. You want to only... Uh, pay the down payment for your daughter, and you want her to be responsible for the mortgage. Otherwise, you would be, if you're a mortgage applicant, you are fully responsible for that loan without getting the opportunity to live in the house. But I don't care what kind of forms are available. You don't want to do a form. You want a lawyer to draw this. And an experienced real estate attorney has done a shared appreciation agreement many times. And it's really nice of you to have this faith in your daughter, to put up this 50000 for her, and it's completely fair for you to get a portion of the profit in the ratio of the financial obligation you're doing. And so I support the whole process. This is a tough one, Clark. Tony in Michigan says... My son invested in Robinhood. Over a month ago, they froze his account, then opened it to sell, but to date, he still cannot remove his money. He wound up having a breakdown and was hospitalized for two weeks because of this, and I don't think he will ever recover until his funds are released. Oh, my goodness. I know. If the company even bothered to return correspondences to let him know when and why, I'm sure it would help. He's not alone. I've started a Facebook group in hope of finding some kind of answer before he gets worse and someone suggested contacting you. He has $60,000 sitting there, and he can't pay his bills. I've been helping him with bills, but only Robinhood can give him back his peace of mind, and we can't even communicate with them. Phones and emails have gone unanswered. Robinhood has operationally been such a failure, and they have let so many people down. That's why there are so many hate groups towards Robinhood now, And Robinhood, as an idea, was one that I very much supported. Unfortunately, things have deteriorated as Robinhood has grown, and the customer-no-service aspect is abominable. Look through who was on the committees in the U.S. House that held hearings on Robinhood. 
if one of those members of the U.S. House that was as part of those hearings is from Michigan, you want to contact that member of Congress and tell them the story about your child. And there's such a focus right now on Capitol Hill on Robin Hood that that may help. The other thing is file a complaint against Robin Hood at the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Everybody in official Washington is unhappy with Robin Hood. And stories like your son's are the kind that bring action about. Um, other than that, I am just, I feel terrible about what's happened. And Krista has found one of the members. Which member is from Michigan that was Representative part of the Haley Stevens. So contacting Representative Stevens' office would be a good idea. Find out who in that office was involved with the hearings where Robin Hood was uh, called to testify. And they just said, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. But nothing's clear in terms of making concrete changes to make Robin Hood more functional. At least nothing so far. I'm really, really sorry. And I hope that your son does come out of this okay. So it's hard to switch topics right now, but coming straight ahead, where can you find the best deal if you are interested in buying a vehicle right now? I'm going to address that. If you've been out there looking for a new vehicle or a used vehicle, you have suffered from sticker shock. It is stunning. I'm looking at a chart from Cox Automotive of what's happened with price points with vehicles over the last few years. And the number of affordable vehicles in the United States, which, okay, you're going to crack up. But what's considered to be an affordable vehicle is one that's less than $30,000 for a new vehicle. I mean, think about it. It wasn't that long ago that the average cost of a vehicle in the United States was under $30,000. So today, if you were looking for a vehicle that costs less than $30,000 new, you'd have about a one in five chance that a vehicle on a dealer lot would be less than $30,000. And today, about that same number are between thirty and $40,000. And then somewhere around 20% of vehicles are between forty dollars and $50,000. But the shocker is how many vehicles are above $50,000. Would you believe that almost 30% of vehicles for sale now cost more than $50,000? I mean, it's unreal. Automakers have decided that there's, for them, no real money to be made below $30,000. Well, that's why people buy used vehicles. And the percent of people buying used vehicles is roughly three-quarters to 80% of the market. There are certain patterns you should know that help when you're buying a used vehicle. And one of the things that drives down the value, bad pun, of vehicles so heavily 
is how much the automaker of a brand leases new vehicles instead of sells them. There was a list from Bloomberg of who is doing the most leasing. I'm going to name the companies that lease more vehicles than anybody else. First, I should tell you, at the absolute top of the list, Infinity, that nearly six out of ten new vehicles that come on an Infinity lot are leased. Right behind them, Acura, Lexus, and BMW. Others that, that lease nearly half of the vehicles that they have show up on their new vehicle lot, Audi, Cadillac, Mercedes, and Volkswagen. So all those brands have heavy depreciation in the first three years because the vehicle cycles are so short in that case from first driver to second. And so that's why a lot of luxury brands, particularly in their near luxury units, see massive decline in value in those first three years. And leasing is a huge factor in that because of its shortening of the ownership cycle. So I know this is crazy, but buying a near luxury version of any of these vehicles, because all these, Volkswagen's not a luxury brand, but all the others are. They have aspirational vehicles that come in the category they call in the trade near luxury. And then you move up to their more expensive vehicles, which ironically enough are leased less and purchased more. But the near luxury ones end up in many cases being very affordable three-year-old vehicle purchases. And so there's a potential opportunity for you. The other great opportunity right now is three-year-old cars. Special emphasis on the word car, because the vehicle market has moved so heavily into SUVs and to a lesser extent pickup trucks that three-year-old cars are the unloved part of the vehicle market. In fact, new cars, any of a number of them, are sitting unloved because everybody's only looking at the SUVs. So there's an opportunity for you if you're interested in driving a car instead of an SUV. Krista? Blake in Arkansas says, I've heard you mention in the past that whole life insurance would only make sense to a high-income earner. Could you please elaborate on when and why a high-income earner should consider whole life? So I should say ultra-high-income earner, and it's because of tax rates. Life insurance, if you buy life insurance as an investment, which would mean typically in my mind um, when somebody thinks that way is a tax advantage thing, they're buying whole life. Although the insurance agents try to push you into absolute garbage that is known as universal life that just blows up on you, stay away from it. Insurance has enormous costs, and it takes typically when you buy what's known as a permanent life insurance policy, like a whole life, it'll take you 12 years 
to go above water because of the massive commissions involved in the purchase of that product. So you have to be an extremely high uh, income earner. What does that mean in terms of income? As far as 21 tax rates for a married couple, let's just go with that. You need to be making north of $600,000 a year. So we're talking about a tiny sliver of the market because your tax rate under current tax law is 37%. If you even went down to the 35% tax bracket, you're going to have to be north of $420,000. Again, a tiny sliver of the market because taxes in the United States, income taxes, are unusually low compared to world standards and extremely low compared to historical standards in the United States. So it's become a bridge too far for people who make lower incomes to make the massive commissions and expenses involved in life insurance work for you well enough that it's worth it for you to do as a way to reduce your tax burdens down the road. Jim in Virginia says, I'm retiring from a 20-year career in the United States Marine Corps. Thank you very much for your service. And I'm doing research on the Survivor Benefits Program. If you're not familiar, it costs 6.5% of pre-tax retirement pay to provide 55% of the retirement benefit to the surviving spouse for the rest of their life. I'm debating this versus a 20-year term life policy where I continue to reinvest the cost difference. We should have enough in our retirement accounts by that time the term policy runs out that she would be able to live comfortably. I'm 43 and my spouse is 45. My calculations have it costing $311 per month for a benefit of $2,633 to my spouse. Thank you for your help and advice over the years. Thank you, James. And there is no automatic right answer to this. The advantage of you taking the uh, 6% haircut on your retirement pay so that your surviving spouse will have a lifetime benefit gives real peace of mind. If that 6.5% reduction in your pay, retirement pay, will not impact your ongoing lifestyle, I think it's worth it because you don't know how long your spouse will live. Uh, if your spouse lives, as many people are now, in to uh, age 90 or 100, then knowing that that money is there forever in a monthly check is, to me, a very valuable thing. That 2600 month after month after month is an awesome benefit. Using term life, it's hard to compare apples to apples because then what you're going to get in the event of your untimely demise, is she's going to get a payout from that. It's going to be a lump sum that she's then going to have to figure out what are the best investment choices. So for my dollars, I would take the reduction in retirement pay so that you have peace of mind for her forever. Andy in Ohio says, one of the rules you mentioned on your mortgage refinancing guide is to never pay for points to get lower interest rate. However, when I use your refinance calculator with the interest savings over the lifetime of the loan on the lower rate, with points paid, it's greater than the higher rate with no points. 
Am I overlooking something here? Wouldn't it make sense to pay for points if the difference in the rate is large enough? Great question. And your math is right, but it's incomplete. Because the average mortgage taken out is only held not for 15, 20, or 30 years, the length of the mortgage. The average mortgage typically is only held for maybe seven years. For many people, shorter than that. So if you are really confident that you've got your forever mortgage in your forever residence, and you are going to have that loan for the whole period of time, then it is a green light thing. It is okay for you to pay the points, get the lower rate. I told a story on the show about my nephew who did exactly that with a property that he refinanced. He paid points, got the rate at an incredible rate, and his intention is to keep that property forever, um, even as an investment property, when he no longer lives in it. So he locked in an ultra-low rate for the entire life of the loan that he fully intends to have for the life of the loan. And if that's your intention, go for it. Michael in Connecticut says, my wife and I diligently saved through the years for our only child's college education through two 529 plans, about half in our state's program and the other in another state's. After going to college for one and a half years, our child decided college was not for them. We have about $100,000 still in these two plans. We want to somehow convert about half into an IRA for her and about half for our own retirement, which is just a year or two away. What's the best way to do this while keeping taxes and penalties to a minimum? Michael, oh man, you're not going to like my answers. You did such a good job saving for college for your daughter. And what happens now is the $100,000, some amount of it is money you contributed. That comes back to you tax-free. But the earnings you've had that make up that $100,000, you have to pay a 10% penalty on it. So let's say that $100,000, $25,000 was gain that you had in the account over the years. Then you have to pay $2,500 in penalty and then on the remainder you have to pay ordinary income tax on the portion that's the gain only so again all the money you contributed comes back to you tax-free but on the difference between what you contributed and what makes up this hundred thousand dollars you have to pay your taxes and the ten percent penalty so it really really stinks how heavily you're penalized and taxed But then the money is yours, and it can go into an IRA for her year by year up to $6,000 as long as she's working, earning more than that. And for you, if you're retiring in a couple of years, you can sock, I'm guessing you're past age 50, you can sock $7,000 into a Roth IRA each of these years for each of you that you have earnings and get a lot of that money into, over two years, you get 28000 into a Roth. The rest of it is your money to invest as you wish, or whenever you have any work, adding it to a Roth IRA. And remember, for her and for you, Roth IRA only with that money. Uh, most of the time, with leftover college money, 
it's often something that people will instead designate for another relative. That's not an option in your case. So the least bad option is just pay the tax and know you have that money. And I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I want to thank you for being a part of Team Clark. Please subscribe to our podcast, review us, and share with your friends. 